You're listening to the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. In this episode, it's part two of a conversation I was having with Jake Garfield on his book, Engaging Buddhism, Why It Matters to Philosophy. In the first one, we were talking about how and why we should engage with Buddhism. And in this episode, we do some engaging. Okay, so, so far we've kind of been discussing mainly methodological questions of kind of how we're going to approach and why we're going to engage with Buddhist philosophy. So I guess now we can get onto the actual engaging itself that you do in the book. Um, and so I think a good place to start is your account of Dukkha, because mm-hmm. yours um, is a different translation from the traditional one, from what I understand. So um, can you tell me a bit about what's motivated how you characterize Dukkha? Okay, so I, I don't think it's very different. I mean, people have used the word suffering for dukkha a lot, but people use a lot of different terms for dukkha, which um, really indicates the complexity of the, and the breadth of the semantic range of the term. So I prefer suffering, but people have used uneasiness, unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease, um, uncom- being uncomfortable, um, unsatisfying, all kinds of things like that. Um, but let's talk about dukkha itself. And I'm just going to use the word suffering because I think it's a pretty good word. It indicates something that happens to us that we don't like um, and that happens to us, not something that we do. And dukkha is important in Buddhism because it is what's called the first noble truth or the first ennobling truth. Um, and that these are the um, insights the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, um, propounded in his very first teaching after his awakening, uh, the uh, discourse turning the wheel of Dharma. And so he announced these four noble truths that represent really the foundation of all of Buddhist thought. Now, of course, we don't say that truths themselves are noble or ignoble. They're truths um, that one ought to take seriously if one wants to be noble, is the best way to parse that, that term, or truths for the noble or something like that. Anyway, the first one is that all of existence is pervaded by dukkha, that all of existence is pervaded by suffering. And when I say that to my students, they say, well, that's a really pessimistic idea. That's a real downer. Who would ever want to believe that? But the longer you think about it, um, the deeper an insight it becomes. And in the Buddhist tradition, we distinguish three different um, levels of suffering. And when you sort of imagine these, you really begin to see the power of this insight. The first level is often translated suffering as suffering, though I've encountered a lovely translation from Thupten Jinpa that I'm now using evident suffering, suffering that's obvious to us. And that includes things like toothaches and headaches and traffic jams and pandemics and all of the stuff that happens that is obviously unpleasant that we don't like. And so part of the truth of suffering, or the truth of dukkha, of the universality of dukkha, is that our lives are permeated by this. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, but that's just not true. There are times when I'm absolutely free of all suffering like that and having a really good time. Say, when I'm on the beach, um, beautiful sunset, sipping a margarita, totally relaxed, don't have to go to work, nothing like that, no suffering at all. And then you want to say to somebody like that, you say, so you're not experiencing any suffering or any unease at all. And they say, nope. 
And I say, are you aware that people are dying by the tens of thousands from COVID around the world right now? Are you aware that people are dying from Ebola in Central Africa? Does it bother you that there are terrible civil wars raging in Sudan and in Mali? Um, now, they have a choice now of two replies. They can either say, oh, yes, that really is a problem, in which case their very awareness of that means that they are suffering, even if they haven't been paying attention to it. They're suffering from awareness of the suffering of others. Or they could answer, yeah, 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 that's happening, but it doesn't bother me, in which case they're suffering from being an asshole. That is, they're suffering from being somebody who has to recognize that they've just said that it doesn't matter to them that other human beings are in terrible agony. And they know that they can't endorse that. They know that they can't really accept that view of themselves. And so they're at least suffering from a moral cognitive dissonance. When you put those things together, you recognize that our entire lives, every moment of them, are permeated by some aspect of evident suffering or the suffering of suffering. The second level of suffering is a slightly deeper level of suffering, and that's called the suffering of change in Buddhism. And it has two dimensions. Here's the one easy dimension. You might be young and healthy and fit right now, and my, a lot of my students are like that. Um, and if you look at somebody like me, you recognize that your future isn't all that rosy. It's kind of all downhill as a long, slow, or maybe quick progression to illness, dementia, uh, disability, maybe a horribly painful disease, and finally death. That is actually what human life looks like. Sorry to break the news to you. Um, the alternative to old age, sickness, infirmity, dementia, horrible pain, and death is dying really young. And most people don't find that very attractive either. So part of the suffering of change is that no matter how good you think your life is, it's going downhill. Another aspect, and again, that is universal. Our existences are permeated by the awareness of our own mortality. Um, the sociologist, uh, Lawrence Becker, a 20th century sociologist, has a word for this. He calls this terror and terror management. He says that our lives are absolutely permeated by the terror of death. Shantideva, by the way, ninth century Buddhist philosopher, had this idea too, that basically the root of suffering is a constant subliminal awareness of our own mortality and a desperate attempt to fend that off. And again, telling people that they're going to get old and die isn't telling them something that they don't know. It's usually telling them something that they do know and spend a lot of time trying to repress. And that itself is an aspect of suffering. But then there's the second dimension of the suffering of change. And that dimension is that even the things that we really like and really enjoy stop being enjoyable after a while. You can try this. You can start on, say, a two-liter box of chocolate ice cream and start with a few spoonfuls, and they're really delicious. Keep eating. So for after a while, when you're halfway through it, it gets a little boring. By the time you're well into that second liter, you're beginning to feel vaguely sick and you don't want any more. That ice cream, which was at one point a source of happiness, has become a source of suffering. And so much of our lives are like that. Think about that pop song that you absolutely loved when it first came out and listened to again and again and again that you now can't stand to hear. That's an example of the suffering of change as well. And again, that permeates our existence. 
The deepest level of suffering, on the other hand, is what Buddhists call the suffering of the pervasiveness of conditioning. And that's the fact that our lives are basically out of our control. We think of ourselves, we'd like to think of ourselves as autonomous centers of agency who can stand on our own two feet, um, protect ourselves, achieve what we want to achieve, avoid what we want to avoid, and be generally in control of our lives. Well, we forget that there are pandemics that upend everything that we want, or tsunamis, or illnesses, or drunk drivers who might hit us even though we're very careful and cause, our, cause us injury or death, um, or just friends who need us and draw us away from what we'd like to do. There are existence and what happens to us from day to day, year to year, and throughout our lives is so much an effect of what happens from outside us that the idea that we're in control is a complete fantasy. And the disjunction between our desire to want to control our lives, to want to ensure our own happiness, and the fact that we're actually not in that kind of control is universal, constant, and a source of deep suffering. And the Buddha's insight was that that level of suffering, that suffering of pervasive conditioning, is really the profound one that permeates our lives, that gives rise to the suffering of change and to evident suffering. So when the Buddha says our entire world is permeated by suffering, that's what he has in mind. And I think it's really hard to deny that idea. From the standpoint of Buddhist philosophy, that sets us with a deep existential problem. Because the very point of suffering, and of calling it suffering, is that people don't like it, people don't want it. And so that sets a deep existential problem. How do we solve the problem of the universality of suffering and transform our lives from, a, from lives of constant suffering into lives that we could endorse? And that's really what we mean by dukkha. Sorry for the long answer, but it's a complicated No, idea. not at all. Um, so as a transition kind of into the sphere of Buddhist ethics, you kind of talk about what causes uh, this suffering that we're talking mm -hmm. about. So uh, as I understand it, that's primal confusion. So what's primal confusion? Okay, that's a, that's a very good question. The second truth um, the Buddha announced at Sarnath was that suffering doesn't just happen. You know, we have these bumper stickers throughout America that say shit happens. Um, you could think of that as the first noble false, second noble falsehood. Um, the first noble falsehood is life is good. Um, so the Buddha thought stuff doesn't just happen. It happens for a cause. And suffering happens due to causes and conditions. And he argued that the proximal causes, the most immediate causes of our suffering, are attraction and aversion. That is, we suffer because we want things that we don't have, and we also suffer because we don't want things that we do have. We're attracted to things we can't have, we're averse from things that we're forced to have. Those, in turn, he argued, are conditioned by what he called primal confusion. Um, now, we, I can think, we can think of primal confusion along the lines of kind of innate or genetically determined or karmically determined, depending on how you want to think about it, um, propensities to illusion. We're familiar with this idea, say, in the context of optical illusions. So most of us are familiar with looking at the illusion of the bent stick in the water. If you stick a straight stick in the water, it appears to be bent or the familiar Mueller-Lyer illusion, where we draw two lines of equal length parallel to one another and put arrowheads on each of them, 
arrowheads pointing out on one, pointing in on the other, and suddenly they look like they're different different lengths. And of course, if you just go online and look up optical illusions, you'll find hundreds of astonishing illusions. One familiar illusion for anybody who cares is the illusion that our visual field is uniform. So we know that at the center of our visual field are black holes where our retinas come in, but our mind somehow fills those in and we don't notice them. We also know that only the very center of our visual field gives us color vision. Um, and most of our visual field is seen in black and white. But again, our brain happily fills in all of the color and gives us the illusion that we're seeing in color from side to side with no hole in the middle. The point I'm making here is that we are wired for illusion. Um, our brains, our minds, our bodies are set up um, to project illusions and to see the world um, through the lens of illusion. One of the illusions um, for which we're wired is the illusion that we are that we have a self, some core I um, that stands behind our thoughts, that stands behind our minds, that stands behind our bodies, and that we have this kind of essential permanent existence. When we have that kind of sense, we have that sense that that self is something very important, very valuable. Perhaps it's immortal. Perhaps it will be reborn in the next life. Perhaps it will um, go to heaven or go to hell. It, Perhaps it will still be the same me when I am in my dotage that I was when I was an infant and so forth. And that me justifies, um, at least prima facie, um, egoistic self-concern, getting enough stuff to make sure that it's protected, staying away from whatever threatens it, taking my own interests more seriously than the interests of others. And so that aspect of primal confusion, the idea that I exist essentially, that I exist as a self, um, the Buddha argued, is really what lies at the basis of the attraction and aversion that lead to the pervasive suffering that we have in our lives. And that's why he argued that it's very important to understand that, in fact, we don't have any self, that all we are is a continuum of psychophysical processes causally related to one another, but also in constant open causal interaction with the world around us. And that over and above that open set of causal processes, there isn't anything that we are. Right. So suffering emerges because we take things um, not how they really are, or if we were being a bit more careful, we take things in a misleading way. Um, That's right. The, this comes out of a very broad idea in, in Indian metaphysics and epistemology, and that is a kind of definition of illusion um, as something that exists in one way but appears to exist in another. So a classical example of this is the Indian uh, snake rope illusion. Um, it's late at night. We're in an area where we know there's a lot of dangerous snakes. We see a coil of rope on the ground and we jump back thinking that it's a snake. Um, the rope exists in one way as a rope, appears in another as a snake. And that's the definition of illusion. So when we say that there is no self in Buddhist theory, we're not saying that we don't exist. We're saying rather that our mode of existence presents itself to us in an illusory fashion. We exist as persons, as these ongoing psychophysical continua that exist in the context of cultures, societies, families, in open interaction with the world. 
and we project this illusion, like projecting the illusion of the snake on the rope. We project this illusion of a substantial independent self that kind of stands outside of the world, experiencing it, looking at it, feeling it, acting on it, um, free of the causal nexus, um, as a subject distinct from object. All of that is cognitive superimposition. All of that is projection. And we take that projection to be just the reality that we inhabit. That's the illusion of self that Buddhists argue is the root of suffering. And so one thing I think that Buddhist thought has to contribute to reflection on personal identity, to reflection on who we are, and to reflection on ethical life, is the idea that a lot of what we take for granted as the, our own nature and the nature of reality is in fact simply illusion. Um, and that we can dispel that illusion with hard philosophical work and perhaps get a more ethically salutary um, mode of interacting with the world as a result, and perhaps even a little release from that pervasive suffering. So the Buddha then, you know, gives a uh, prescription as to how we respond to this illusion, and that is kind of the Buddha's in instructions, you know, very broadly, if I was trying to say this in the kind of way that is common to as many Buddhist schools as possible, it's that we kind of at least acknowledge the illusion and in our you know everyday awareness are immediately aware of this illusion um so then in kind of response to a kind of prescription and say kind of this is how you should act and what you should do we have some questions about kind of the euthyphro dilemma and how we see ethical prescriptions and action in that context and i, I found your Kind of what you said about the use of our dilemma in the context of Buddhist ethics really interesting. So, could you kind of contextualize what I'm talking about with the use of our dilemma, um, and also kind of explain uh, how you think Buddhist ethics can contribute to this? Yeah, I mean, the Euthyphro dilemma, coming from Plato's early dialogue, the Euthyphro, is this: Do we understand um, that things are morally right because they're antecedently approved of by some religious authority? Or are things approved of by religious authority because they're independently morally right? Um, Buddhism, Buddhist approach to ethics, I think, kind of cuts through that knot um, in a funny way or sets it aside. Because when we look at Buddhist ethical thought, Buddhist ethical thought is not specifically about what we do or about what's approved. And we don't have a religious authority it's either approving or disapproving of what we do or a set of obligations. Instead, um, Buddhist ethical thought is about transforming our way of experiencing the world. I've put this in a few places in the following way. Most, not all, but the vast majority of Western ethical theorists think of the domain of ethics in terms of what the right actions are, what, how we ought to act, or what the, our reasons for action ought to be. I call that output ethics. It's about what we do, what comes out of ethical reflection. And that's broadly true of much of the Western ethical tradition. The exceptions, I would say, would be the Stoic tradition and the British sentimentalist tradition of people like um, Hutchinson, Shaftesbury, Mandeville, Hume, and Adam Smith that comes out of that Stoic tradition. But that's a small stream. 
within uh, Western moral thought generally. Um, Buddhist ethics, on the other hand, is more on the input side. It's about how we experience the world. And so when we think about ethical thought and we think about ethical practice in a Buddhist context, what we're thinking about is personal transformation, transformation from seeing the world through the lens of illusion that almost inevitably results in attraction, aversion, egoism, um, and so forth, and transforming ourselves into beings who see the world properly, who see the world through the lens of interdependence, of dependent origination, as we say in the Buddhist world, Pratijit Samadhada, um, who see the world in terms of selflessness, and so see ourselves as participating in an open causal and um, moral interchange with others and with the rest of the world. The Buddhist rubric for understanding what that kind of decentered view of the world, where I don't see myself as the center of the moral universe, but just as part of it, um, comes through what are called the Brahma Viharas, or the divine states. And those divine states are friendliness, um, care for others, um, rejoicing or being happy at the success of others, and impartiality these four states that are meant to work together. And when you think about those four states together, friendliness involves wishing well to others because one recognizes one's commonality with them. Care for others because one recognizes that suffering, pain, and so forth are bad per se. Not just not because they're mine, but they're bad per se. My suffering is bad, not because it's mine, as Shantideva emphasizes, but because it's suffering. And if that's true, then your suffering and her suffering and his suffering are also problematic and something about which I should care. Happiness is something that deserves rejoicing. And it's not just because it's my happiness, but because it's happiness. I rejoice at my happiness, not because it's mine, but because it's happiness. And that's a reason to rejoice in the happiness of others as well. When I recognize there's nothing very special about me, and nothing very special about those who are near me. I develop an attitude of impartiality and equanimity. Um, all of these are attitudes that contribute to decentering myself and not seeing myself as, you know, kind of the middle pole of, of the moral universe. Buddhist ethical thought is about that transformation and about how to transform ourselves from somebody completely blinded by primal confusion to somebody who interacts with the world in a rationally sensible way. And then we don't have to ask, is that right because somebody else approves of it? Do they approve of it because it's right? Rather, we see that it's an ethically reasonable way of relating to the world because it's a rational way of relating to the world. And so reason and ethical thought come together very nicely in that way. Okay, so we've already kind of started to cover why, um, well, We've started to cover the prevalence of kind of uh, illusions in our everyday understanding and the misapprehension that we have itself. So then we can have a kind of question there of there seems to be this um, criticism of the notion that uh, when we believe we have a self, uh, we can not, cannot be mistaken. And that uh, when we introspect, as in when we kind of look at our own experience, um, we can't be mistaken. And, you know, this is something that uh, seems to be very prevalent in uh, Western philosophy, at least since uh, I assume this kind of came from 
um, Descartes. So what might these kind of arguments about the prevalence of illusion tell us about introspection and whether it is inherently free from error? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, we tend, and I, I think you're right that Descartes one of the villains in this story, um, to think that when we introspect, that we are so immediately aware of our own inner states, that we're so intimate with them, that nothing comes between us and them, that we just have those states and know them as they are, just in virtue of having them. That's kind of what um, the 20th century Wilfred, philosopher Wilfred Sellers called the myth of the given, the idea that these states are just given to us as they are. And I think that one way of thinking about primal confusion is that the essence of primal confusion is confusing something we constructed with something that was just given to us. We build this experience and then tell us that we just experienced the world as it is directly. Um, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant criticized this quite directly in his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, in the second edition in the discussion of uh, the refutation of idealism. When he pointed out that when we introspect, we know ourselves only subject to the conditions of inner sense, that is, of our introspective faculty. And this was an idea that Buddhist philosophers had very, very long ago. The idea that we don't have five sensory faculties, we have six sensory faculties. Contemporary cognitive science has added a few to those, but that, that's, we can leave that aside. And the sixth sense that, uh, in which Buddhists were interested in, it's not ESP or something like that, it's the introspective sense faculty, the sense faculty by means of which we know our own inner cognitive, affective, psychological states. And the point that they made was, that we know that every sense faculty is a um, subject to illusion or distortion. We have auditory illusions, visual illusions, olfactory illusions, and so forth. And so there's no reason to believe that the inner sense faculty is not also subject to illusions, but also that we kind of know that it is. Because one of the persistent illusions that afflicts all of our sense faculties is the illusion of subject-object duality the illusion that we stand as independent subjects as opposed to objects, and that we just register objects as they are, like some kind of cosmic photocopying machines, rather than the idea that we construct those objects through the operation of our sense, sensory consciousness, our sensory faculties, our sensory organs, in open causal interaction with the world. So to use a visual example for a moment and then to bring that back to the introspective case, you might think if you look out of your window at a tree, then what's happening is that there's a tree that looks a particular way and that tree itself gets replicated as a tree experience inside of your head. But you might think that tree is tall, brown, green, um, but there's nothing tall, brown, and green inside your head. If there is, you'd better get to a neurosurgeon really quickly. Um, rather, what's going on in your head is a bunch of neurological activity that is instigated by impulses coming through several pathways in your brain that in turn are caused by electrochemical activity on the back of your retina that's in turn caused by light refracted by a gelatinous uh, fluid in your eyeball that's in turn 
caused by photons bouncing off of something outside. There's nothing brown and green in any of that story. The brown and green is something that's constructed in your visual experience, but which you experience as a tree completely independent of you. That's the illusion of subject-object duality. Now notice that that same illusion afflicts auditory consciousness, olfactory consciousness, gustatory consciousness, tactile consciousness. In each case, we confuse a complicated biopsychological construction in our brain with something external that's completely independent of us. The Buddhist insight is then that the same thing is true of introspective sense. If I've got a sensation, or I, I look inside and I find a sensation, or a desire, or a thought, what I'm discovering is that sensation, or desire, or thought, as processed by and understood by my introspective sense faculty, not some property of my mind as it is. David Hume put this point very nicely, by the way, in the preface to the Treatise of Human Nature, when he said that introspection can never catch the mind as it is. It can only catch the mind as it appears in introspection. And the American philosopher and psychologist William James said that trying to catch your mind as it is in introspection is like trying to turn the flame up on your lamp so you can see more clearly what darkness looks like. Um, the very act of introspection manages to deliver your own mind to you only as it exists in introspection, not as it is. That's the pervasiveness of primal confusion that leads to the pervasiveness of, um, of dukkha in the world. Okay, so this might also kind of lead us to question not just kind of, you know, the assumptions around introspection within philosophy, but also about kind of Buddhism um, as it is practiced. And this is something that you re don't really drive home in the book and is something that I find interesting. So I've got a, a figure here, 92.4% of people who responded to um, a survey by uh, Coleman in the New Buddhism said that meditation ranked as the single most important activity their group carried on. So this is their kind of Buddhist group. There's also been an explosion of uh, research into meditation, um, yeah. so particularly um, in the Mind and Life Institute. And I get the impression that you think the focus on research into meditative introspection is a bit misguided. Am I, am I right in saying that? Some of it is, but not all. I mean, meditation is a very important activity in Buddhist traditions, um, and it can be extremely transformative. The danger, and I think this is a danger in contemporary um, um, Buddhist communities quite a bit, as well as in some, but not all, of the research that we find on meditation, is that people tend to think of meditation as a kind of infallible direct instrument for registering the nature of mind as it is. That's a real danger. That's just replicating primal confusion in an attempt to dispel it. Instead, we want to think of meditative practices, and there are many different kinds of meditative practices, both within and without the Buddhist tradition. We want to think of meditative practices as techniques for transforming, for reshaping our experience that might be very useful, but they can be very useful even dis despite the fact that what they don't do is to give us a direct access to the nature of our cognitive experience. The idea that somehow we have an infallible instrument that delivers the nature of mind as it is, I think is a gross illusion and often an illusion that I hear 
when I listen to people in meditative communities and to some researchers who make use of meditative subjects. Mm. So, you know, the fact that we have this interesting tool of meditation doesn't mean that we should ignore the fact that we've found that the unconscious plays, um, you know, an important role in understanding the mind and how consciousness works. No, and in fact, that if we're careful, we find that meditative um, insight can lead us to that understanding. Mm. And to, so to know that that is true even of meditative practice itself. If what you're looking for is the foundation that gives us some access to reality as it is, the real message of Buddhist epistemology is there is no such thing. We're kind of getting closer to the question of qualia in study of consciousness um mm-hmm. and this has been quite an important uh you know argument in philosophy of mind for um well against functionalism primarily actually well to an extent but it's, it's been an important argument um and there's this kind of argument surrounding zombies and you said that i, th- I thought this was very interesting not necessarily you know um means anything as an argument but every single buddhist philosopher you'd discussed with had not find found philosophical zombies as a thought experiment remotely convincing um which is which is quite striking i guess um so can you tell me a bit about what zombies are and why you think this is the case yeah (laughs) yeah zombies are one of the more peculiar characters um introduced into recent western philosophy of mind um and they're introduced in order to try to demonstrate the reality of some kind of inner experience or phenomenal consciousness, and that it makes some kind of a difference to who we are. And the idea is that we can imagine beings just like us, functionally identical to us, with all the same beliefs, desires, and behaviors, but without any phenomenal experience. And we're different from them in that we also have this phenomenal experience or these qualia. And that demonstrates that this awareness of qualia, this phenomenal experience is somehow essential to our distinctively human lives. Um, Notice that that's an incoherent thought experiment. It's akin to saying, yeah, there are some circles that aren't square, but we can imagine square circles too. And the difference between the circles we know and those other circles is they've got squareness and ours don't. And you'd say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You ought to say that about zombies too, because zombies are supposed to be functionally identical to us. But if they're functionally identical to us, their beliefs are supposed to be caused by the same things as our beliefs. And since they have all the same beliefs that we do, they believe that they have qualitative experience as well. And uh, since our beliefs that we have qualitative experience are, according to this story, supposed to be caused by our qualitative states or the qualia that we introspect, it would follow that zombies have to as well. And so you can't both have have functional identity and the lack of qualitative experience. And since most Buddhist philosophers think of our cognitive lives, our perceptual lives, our affective lives, as this ongoing causal stream that involves our constant um, causal interaction with the environment around us. None of them have ever believed that somehow the properties of our environment outside of us are replicated by inner properties or inner paint. Outer blue is replicated in inner blue. 
And so they've never even been tempted by the idea that zombies are supposed to convince us of. And they've never been tempted by the idea that there's more than one way that perceptual beliefs could occur, A, with qualia, or B, without qualia. And I think that makes perfect sense. Mm. So if zombies are possible, I might be a zombie. If zombies are possible, you are a zombie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So am I right in saying that you have two books that are coming out this year? I've got one that's definitely coming out this year that is co-authored with my colleagues, Yasuo Deguchi, Bob Scharf, and Grand Priest. And that is called On What Can't, what Can't Be Said, Paradox and Contradiction in East Asian Philosophy. And then another book that will probably come out next year on Buddhist ethics for philosophers. Another one with a very large team, a team of 10 people called the Yak Herds, um, that is an intellectual history of a debate in Tibetan epistemology that will come out in two volumes probably late next year. Mm. And they both sound very exciting. They and are. <laughs> and I'll make great movies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and um, kind of talking to me. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks very much, Tom. And I've enjoyed it. And I wish you and your listeners uh, good health and safety in these terrible times. Okay, so that's the end of this episode of the podcast. And it's the end of the first two episodes, which were a discussion with Jay Garfield. Um, next week, it's going to be a discussion with Glenn Wallace um, about his book, A Critique of Western Buddhism. If you don't want to miss that, make sure you follow on Spotify or Apple Music. And if you want to support it, you can always leave a review on Apple Music as well. Thanks a lot.